A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag. That's not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep. A harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. You look dandy in the sky. Track by Track presents Trout Mouse Corplica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's epical 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Pachuco Cadaver, which is track seven, first track on side two of Trout Mask Replica. It was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California. March 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel is Bill Harkelrode, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo on guitar. Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar. Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass. John French, a.k.a. The Incomparable Drumbo on drums. And Don Van Vliet on vocals and on this track, saxophone. Length of the track is 4 minutes and 40 seconds. Practically an epic by the standards of this album, where most of the tracks are 3 minutes or under. Um, my guest today, it is a great honor to have the uh, composer, YouTuber, uh, podcaster, and man who has done a great deal uh, more for contemporary discussion of Trout Mask Replica and Captain Beefheart's music than virtually anybody else, Samuel Andreev. Samuel, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, if you took a shot for every time I recommended uh, Mr. Andreev's um, video where he goes through Frownland on this show, you'd probably die of alcohol poisoning. Um, because it is the single best um, breakdown of what makes the compositional structure on this album unique that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, You are also um, the uh, only person I've ever spoken to who has spoken to every uh, surviving member of the Trout Mask Replica Band. You have interviewed all of these guys, um, which is really remarkable. Uh, So in the Frownland video, you mentioned that Trout Mask Replica was given to you by a uh, composition teacher. I was curious. So you're coming to this album with probably more experience with avant-garde music and kind of dissonant contemporary classical music than the average person off the street who might pick it up in a record store. Uh, I was curious what your experience was like with rock and roll prior to hearing uh, Trout Mask Replica. Oh, well, I got interested in rock music really early, actually. Uh, and I tended to gravitate towards things that were a little bit off the beaten track just by by nature. I mean, the thing is, if something occurred to me as being too obvious, let's say, or something like too easy to assimilate, or it's like you kind of got the idea in, in five minutes, then it wouldn't hold my attention. Like I, I wanted something mm-hmm. that I could really, really dig into and uh, and that would require, you know, a few listenings and you'd really have to focus on it and, and, you know, something that would be a really rich musical experience. And so I just tended to gravitate towards those sorts of things. So, uh, so Trout Mask Replica and albums uh, of that ilk were like just a natural thing that you would gravitate towards. I remember actually probably about 12 or 13 years old when I found a copy of uh, Rolling Stone did this, did this issue. I, it was like the, the 100 best albums since I, I can't remember the exact title of the issue, but it was like one of these lists of the of the greatest albums or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Trout Mask Replica was in there. And like the first thing I noticed when I read that article, like you see this uh, huge full color photograph of the Woodland Hills photo session where they're all you know wearing their completely freakish outfits and the colors are reversed so the like the grass is red and all that that kind of thing it's like just the just visually the 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 shock of that photo was was pretty incredible and uh, and the article was actually really well written they had like a you know a half page article on every every one of the 100 albums that they'd chosen 
and it was uh, it was immediately compelling. It's like you wanted to go out and hear this thing. Like it just made you curious. So, but I couldn't find a copy of it. It's like it wasn't the sort of thing that you know everybody my age had, right? And uh, and in the days before the internet, it's like if you didn't have a physical copy of something, it was you know you had to actually go out and buy it somewhere. Right. I mean, it's true. I had a composition teacher who who uh, let me lick my decals off, which was even harder to find than trout mask. But before that. Uh, there were some people I knew in my neighborhood in Toronto who were, you know, total weirdos, total eccentrics, uh, who were into Captain Beefheart, and they had a cassette copy of Trotmask Replica, and they gave this to me. They they lent it to me, and I, I listened to it immediately, and was just totally fascinated, like immediately. Like it, it didn't take long, and I, I distinctly remember, like I had a little, uh, like very crude, primitive studio set up in my parents' garage. And I remember sitting on a milk crate in this, uh, in my parents' garage, listening to Trout Mask Replica and just getting more and more astonished. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like, first of all, like how was this thing made? How could you make something like this? Like what was the process by which something like this could possibly happen? Because it seemed so utterly alien and, and, and shockingly original and new in so many respects. And so I was, you know, totally fascinated. It's funny that you mentioned cassette. I was just talking with someone uh, the other day when, uh, doing the rundown of this album, because I mean, this was originally a double album, but my first experience with it was on CD. So for me, it flowed in this one long blurt from beginning to end and was this kind of like running the gauntlet experience of starting with Frownland and and running on through to uh, Veterans Day Poppy. And uh, the the experience of having the act break going from side one to side two to side three to side four must have made the experience a little bit different in terms of like gather, gathering your gumption to to turn it over and listen listen to the next track. So you were you were captivated immediately by this music. Oh yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah, totally. Without without any hesitation. Like there were, there was no moment where I thought, oh, this is too difficult or something. No, it was it was right at my alley. Like I like a rich musical experience, and and that's what you get with Trout Mask. It's like. Uh, you know, and the, the the proof, like the fact that here we are, I don't know how many years it's been, 20 years later, at least, probably more than that. And I'm still talking about it and still thinking about it and, and still like hearing it in a new way each time I sit down and listen to it is proof of that. Whereas a great deal of rock music, it's like, like I said earlier, it's you, you assimilate it quickly, you kind of get an idea of how it works. And for me personally, like once that's happened, I don't feel like I need to keep listening. I'd rather just move on to something mm-hmm. else that uh, that is you know more interesting. But in the case of Trout Mask and, and other albums, um, you know, that I can think of, it's like, yeah, you, you keep listening because the, the album is so unusual and so complex in many respects that, you know, you're going to hear different things in it each time you sit down and, and, and listen to it. Yeah, I've I've listened to this album at this point more times than I could probably count. And when I listen to it each time, I still hear things that I've never caught before or make associations that that I've never heard before. Like you say, it's it's rich and so much. Um, I was just uh, listening to your interview with um, Mark Boston, Rocket Morton, and he made some some observation that you know, each riff on the album, any other band would have probably stretched out to an entire song or maybe used one or two of the riffs in any given song to to create an entire song. Whereas on Trout Mask Replica, those are going on at the same time as maybe three or four other riffs. And then within the space of about 30 seconds, they've moved on to something completely different. Right. Yeah. So it's it's incredibly dense. Uh, and and not only that, it's like each each little section or, or chunk of, of the of a song is going to have multiple uh, different figures going on simultaneously and often at different speeds. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's like 
exponentially more dense than than like a typical rock song. And I think that's that's part of that that partly explains how it's possible to uh, to keep hearing those songs uh, and never get tired of them. Is just that it's very it's actually very difficult in a certain sense. Like it take it, it it makes a certain cognitive demand on the listener to get through a song like that because there's you know there could be three or four quite distinct things happening simultaneously at any moment. So what that means for the listener in terms of your perception is like you're, you, you, it's going to be very difficult to focus on each of those lines simultaneously. So you're going to tend to, mm-hmm. you know, pick out one one riff or like you focus on the bass line or maybe it's the, the voice line that, and each time you listen to the song, your focusing is going to be a little bit different. You're going to be drawn to some other aspect of the of the song, and and so you have all these multiple different perspectives that you can hear these songs with, and I, I think that just you know that makes them incredibly interesting to listen to. Yeah, there's a three-dimensionality to it, whereas a great deal of rock music simply kind of runs at two dimensions, which is, I think, a, a lot of people, upon encountering this album, say it took them several listens to really get any kind of any kind of feel for what was going on. I know Matt Groening, who's been a real proponent of the Magic Band, said something along the lines of the first time he heard it, he thought it was the worst thing he'd ever heard in his life, and by the fourth time he heard it, he thought it was the greatest rock album ever made and continues to feel that way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have described similar experiences with the album. The difference, I think, with me is I, I didn't actually go through that initial phase of thinking, "Oh, this is terrible." Like that, I just thought it was fantastic from the from the beginning. But that could be because I have, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a composer, so I'm kind of used to uh, hearing things that maybe take uh, that are not easy to assimilate at first. Mm-hmm. But that could be part of it. But um, and also, I just I actually liked the abrasiveness of it and the. Uh, the the timbral qualities of the guitars, which are you know distorted and harsh and all of that, but I I was into those qualities. I liked them. I found them bracing and exciting. And it, it never, I never thought, oh, this is this is too much. Yeah, I suppose if you've already heard like Stockhausen, this probably isn't going to to seem quite as terrifying as if you come you're coming to it from listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival or something like that. Which is uh, yeah, I hasten to say that I actually like Creedence, but. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it all depends on what it is you're expecting. But with with trout masks, it's like all bets are off. You you just you, you cannot possibly imagine what's about to hit you over the head when you when you put this thing on. And the other thing is, it, it's not as though the entire album is homogenous from beginning to end. Like that's that's one thing that you you kind of sometimes get from people describing the album is is that it's just well, it's just this one crazy uninterrupted thing. But it's actually not. Like some of the songs are a lot easier to get into than others. Some of them are much more complex than others. Some of them are actually almost fairly straightforward. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you have things like Frownland, which is probably one of the most complex things on the on the record. But you also have these um, sort of vestiges of the of the house recordings, right? When when Zappa set up a mobile recording studio and and tried to do a, a house recording of of the Magic Band in situ as they were actually working in the pieces. Um, and so, the, like the album has actually a lot of different layers to it. There's the things that uh, that Don Van Vliet recorded onto a a cheap handheld uh, tape recorder. The dust blows forward and the dust blows back. And those those kinds of tracks. Uh, Orange claw hammer. You have that sort of uh, improvised uh, shuffle guitar thing. Uh, China pig. There's the hair pie pieces that were recorded at the house, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's multiple different levels to the album, and it, it's there's there's actually quite a lot of variety once you start to become really familiar with the world of the of the record. That's one of the things that's really struck me in doing this project and and talking to different people about the songs on this album is the really remarkable variety and the variety of of colors and shades and moods 
on this record that it starts with Frownland and then immediately goes into Dust Blows Forward and the Dust Blows Back, which could not be more different just in terms of tone and and uh, effect is indicative of the the remarkable variety. And then there's, yeah, it has this reputation as being harsh and difficult. And one of the things that I, I want to discuss on this show, um, just as an overarching thesis is, is this album as challenging as its reputation, as the reputation that precedes it? But then you'll have a track like uh, Orange Claw Hammer, which is by any real by any definition of of musical beauty is a beautiful song is a a glorious soaring melody and delivered beautifully and movingly so it's it's not it's not metal machine music it's not simply uh music designed to be abrasive there's there's all kinds of things being expressed oh definitely and I think uh, Don Van Liet actually absolutely had a sense of beauty. He was very uh, attuned to to aesthetic beauty and in, in its many forms, whether it was uh, painting or or in music or or poetry or any of these things. Um, the way he expressed it, I think one of the things that I, I find really uh, quite touching about the album is there, there's a kind of almost childlike immediacy to it. It's it's you know it's it's like it's, it's gestural, it's direct, it doesn't beat around the bush. It just it says what it has to say, and it, it does so in a very immediate sort of tactile uh, gestural way. I, I really find that quite appealing. Um, the other thing, I mean, regarding the the, the density, um, like you have to think about the way rock albums would have been made from about the, the mid 60s let's say until till the end of the decade in most cases uh you know a band would go into a studio they'd have a very limited amount of time to make the record they, in fact most of these bands if they were you know successful they would have been doing a lot of touring they would have had tremendous pressures placed on them so they wouldn't have had a lot of time to write the material or to rehearse it or anything right so in many cases they'd have to go off and write a bunch of songs in, in a couple of weeks between shows or something like that then go mm-hmm. into a studio two or three days bang out an album like uh, the you know i'm a big fan of the kinks for example uh but like even the best of their albums like face to face or um village green preservation society like it's obvious that those records were made in great haste in you know not terribly good conditions and you know sure. Not very good studios, and you know, like the the performances are a little bit awkward sometimes. They're not always super polished. Like I love them anyway, like because that's they're 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 great records. But you can tell like these were done very very quickly. And then something like Trout Mask, what it what it actually is is it's a massive challenge to that whole approach because you could not possibly make something like Trout Mask in a few weeks. It's like the only way that you can come up with a record like this is to have four or five guys uh, living together in basically a cult-like situation for Mm. a year at least, constantly working and, uh, you know, just in this crazy atmosphere. And then, you know, like they've described it, they've all said basically the same thing. We were working about 16 hours a day for like a year. And uh, that's just a, a kind of crazy work ethic that most people would not submit themselves to and with reason because it's incredibly difficult uh but that's what happened and so what you have is like uh i don't know how many hundreds of thousands of man hours of uh just sheer grit and work and and rehearsal condensed down into this you know a double lp and uh so it's it's miles beyond what other groups were able to do because you know, who else could take an entire year, no touring, nothing else, not leaving the house, working 16 hours a day? That never happens in rock bands. It's it's kind of like the 
the um, sound bite that gets taken from, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell, that you have to do something for 10,000 hours to get really good at it. And they just took that 10,000 hours and compressed it down into the span of one year. Yeah, yeah. Just, just doing it all in one one long uh, stretch. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about the um, the uh, the experience that the Magic Band members had making this because you've you've spoken to all of them. But um, specifically, the track that we're talking about today is Pachuco Cadaver. And um, for the guests on this show, I gave them the opportunity to pick which tracks they'd like to talk about. And this is one of the ones that you selected as a personal favorite. Uh, what is it about Pachuco Cadaver that particularly appeals to you? Well, first of all, I like that it's a, a longer track. Um, and it ends with this extended sort of, you can't really call it a jam exactly, but there's a, there's a kind of a groove they get into in the second half of the piece that is really infectious. It's just super fun to listen to. And one of the things I really like about it is it, it actually sounds simultaneously, totally spontaneous and, you know, almost semi-improvised, but at the same time you can tell it's structured and to have that, have those two qualities coexist, I think is, is always uh, a really exciting thing. If you can make that happen, you can tell actually that the way the track ends is, is quite funny because they're not, you know, they're not actually quite sure exactly when it should stop. And it ends in this kind of provisional way with a kind of a, a hit on the, uh, on the hi-hat from John French. But um, yeah, I, I like this track a lot because it's 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 long. It's it's sort of it's got a number of different sections in it that are independently all very interesting, and um, just instrumentally, it's 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 really remarkable. And I, I also love this sort of flat kind of sly vocal delivery that uh, where it's not, it's not really sung. It's not like the, the vocal performance isn't exactly sung, but it's not exactly spoken either. It's a kind of it's almost like a a poetry reading or. You could almost call it like a, a melodrama, a melodrama of some kind. It's like it's a, it's a very animated vocal delivery, but without actually being singing. And one of the interesting things about that actually is if if you look way back in the history of uh, of twentieth century music uh, to uh, Arnold Schoenberg and his work Pierrot Lunaire, which is a uh, a composition for soprano and small instrumental ensemble, he asks the soprano to be sort of halfway in between talking and singing. Uh, and in German, this was called Sprechgesang, and the idea was that you're you're kind of you're you're basically it's basically a speaking voice, but it's it's a lot more animated, and there's a lot more variety in the in the pitches and that sort of thing. But it's not exactly singing; it's sort of in between. You get a lot of that on Trope Mask Replica, where it's like, it's not, you know, how would you define what Don Van Vliet is doing? Is it is it singing? Is it talking? Is it, you know, what is it exactly? Um, part of that is because, as we know, he didn't really rehearse with the band exactly. Right. right. I mean, he would, he would come from time to time, and, you know, obviously he was... Uh, he was writing the basic riffs and and he would tell the guys what to do to some extent, but also to a very large extent, they were left to their own devices and had to put the songs together based on his often rather vague instructions. So then he would come and and do his performance on top of what they were doing. But I, I, as far as I understand it, in, in some cases, he had never actually sung with the band on top of these pieces, and at least during the, 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 the sort of house rehearsals. 
So with uh, with this track, you know, it's it's not exactly coordinated to what the 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 performers are doing on the on the backing track. It, it sort of is, but it's also sort of not. It sort of floats on top, and that relates also to Zappa's idea of xenocrony. In other words, uh, Zappa invented this technique, which I love, where he would take um, a live performance of you know of a, of a piece. And then you would add, you would overdub a guitar solo on top of that, but it would be a guitar solo taken from maybe another song played on another evening. So like they, the, the two, the two things just don't relate to each other at all, but you sort of, um, you fill around with the mix and you move it a little bit forward or a little bit, you know, a little bit back and mm-hmm. uh, maybe you change the pitch a little bit and like you, you edit it in such a way that an interesting relationship between these two unrelated things starts to occur. Um, which is like a, a wonderful idea. I think it's actually a really one of, one of Zappa's most innovative ideas. And you kind of get that in, in Trope Mask Replica where a lot of the the lines sort of have this floating relationship to each other. They don't really lock into place exactly. Boston described it as as he was kind of floating above it and then maybe touching down, um, you know, vaguely at, at the, the, the point, the stops and starts of, of the different blocks, but that there wasn't, it, it was disconnected in that particular, in that way. Uh, Langton Winter describes uh, Van Fleet's vocal performance on this track as uh, taking the form of the rising and falling emphatic tones of an Old West storyteller, mm. which is which I kind of liked. Um, well, there's is, so many there, there are so many different vocal personas that that uh, that he invents on this album. Like oh, yes. Practically every song is is sung in a different register, a different way, and uh, he he sort of comes up with these. They're really characters in a way. He's like embodying a character. And in this one, there's this kind of braggadocio. It's like it's this weird mm-hmm. kind of, uh, yeah. And, and it's it's parodistic, like it's tongue in cheek. You can tell that because it's 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 like it's slightly ridiculous. And that that's one of the things that I really like about it. Yeah, there's a smile behind the lines on on this track, definitely. Uh, one of the things that that particularly appeals to me about this track is for so much of the music on this and so much of the lyrics on this, it it feels like this very kind of otherworldly experience where you're dropped off onto a different planet without really any points of reference or understanding what he's singing about in any kind of literal sense or you know and you're you're being exposed to music that doesn't really sound like anything you've ever heard before but on some tracks he will give you these little points of reference that are things from his life or things from popular culture for the world that that give you a little thing to little things to hang on to i was just talking on on the moonlight on vermont episode about the uh, steve reich reference with come out to show them and oh, yeah. and giving mm-hmm. you a little giving you a little point of reference there and on here the fact that he is referencing pachucos which is something from his um from his youth on the uh on the eric there's an article by i think its name is eric gudas on all about jazz uh, the very title pachuco cadaver evokes a period in los angeles history the zoot suit era of the 1940s and 50s, about which Van Vliet would have heard on the radio from L.A. out in the high desert. And most importantly, as a boy, Pachuco belongs to his childhood and early adolescent word horde, which is a great turn of phrase. And I, Zappa said that when he first met Van Vliet, he was dressing as a in Pachuco style. He was very fond of wearing khakis and French-toed shoes and dressing in the latest Pachuco fashion. So... Now, yeah. In the midst of this otherworldly experience, he's singing about something that's very specific to his high desert uh, California upbringing. Right. I mean, all of that was completely opaque to me when I first heard the album because oh, I mean, same I, here. I grew up, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in in Canada in the eighties and nineties. Like, what what the hell did I know about Pachucos? And it's this yep. like it's it's this Los Angeles sort of subculture 
that I've, you know, I would never have encountered. So I, I didn't even know what the word meant. But the thing is, like, even if you miss those kinds of references, the 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 wordplay is so vivid and and so um, tangible in a certain way. Uh, and he uses really really striking images all the time. So that even if you're not exactly sure what the sort of the cohesive idea is that sort of ties all of it together. You still get an incredibly wild uh, experience just just listening to this stream of uh, of highly colored images, and that's one of the things that makes the songs really work. I think it's not like there are there are other albums where there's a kind of obscurity that you kind of have to dig into if you want to have any sense of what's going on. I'm thinking of things like Song Cycle by Van Dyke Parks. It's like, mm-hmm. that's a really obscure record, a lot of it. And and like you, you kind of do need to know what he's talking about if you want to sort of appreciate the the ideas and the songs. Whereas in Trout Mask, it's like there are, there are so many levels upon which you can sort of uh, encounter these songs and, and appreciate them so that if, if there's one thing you miss, it doesn't matter because there'll be like five other things that you can immediately latch onto and enjoy. It's like the opening of Pachuco Cadaver is a, is a good example of what I mean, because you have like a pretty straightforward guitar riff. It's like, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and then underneath that, you have this completely bonkers bass line. It's like, it's like, first of all, it's in a completely unrelated speed to what's going on in the guitars. Um, it's just these sort of quickly alternating octaves on the bass, but played in this really lively kind of messy way, which I, I really love. Um, and they only vaguely relate to each other rhythmically, like they kind of relate harmonically, but it's, I, I just love that, that feeling of, of like a loose interplay between slightly related things. It's, it's tremendously exciting. Yeah. I read in Mike Barnes's, um, book about Captain Beefheart that, that Van Vliet, um, in his words, engineered the bass part to be deliberately out of sync uh, with everything else. And on the house recordings, it does sound like what what Boston is playing is a little bit more in rhythm with the rest of the band. Um, whether, uh, I mean, not to not to dispute Barnes's accuracy, um, but I, it, it that's the degree to which Van Vliet was involved in the actual massaging of these different parts seems to vary depending on on uh, which magic band member you're, you're discussing. Um, yeah. I mean, what's, what's great about the bass playing on the album generally is that it doesn't fulfill any of the traditional functions of bass playing uh, right. in rock music or in any music for that matter. Like the bass normally grounds the harmony. Like it, 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 it helps you to determine what the chord is and what the quality of the chord is. That's, that's its traditional function. And it also in, in rock music anyway, it typically locks in with the, with the, uh, the bass drum uh, so that you have a, you know, a strong downbeat at the beginning of every bar. Um, and it doesn't do either of those things. Um, and for, like, first of all, the, like Mark, Mark Boston plays in the entire range of the bass, like all the way up mm. to the very, very highest notes you can play on the top E string. And um, there's all kinds of unusual playing techniques. He plays glissandos, he plays chords, he plays melodies. Like it's, these just are not typical bass lines. In fact, if anything, you could almost consider what he does to be like a third guitar part because it's it's polyphonically, melodically completely independent. It, it sometimes it locks in with what the guitars are doing. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, it plays solos. Sometimes it plays repeating figures. It's just Mark Boston is a jack of all trades on this recording, and he, he does so many different things, so many different interesting textures. Playing with metal banjo picks, I think he said. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Don Van Vliet. Um, 
had some interesting requirements with the players. Like he wanted them to play with a specific gauge of, of strings, like thick strings so that you would, you would actually have to really bang them quite hard to, to, to play the instrument. And he also wanted the, the different players to, to work with metal finger picks to get this really harsh sort of sound. Um, and I think it's just a, it's just fantastic. I, I love listening to it. it. It certainly provides a, a consistency to the, to the attack throughout the album i know that that playing with 100 percent intensity was was his primary requirement uh from these guys um there's a billion things that we could discuss about this track it, it it's a personal favorite of mine as well um uh, i know you have limited time today so i'm not going to take up too much more of your time i did want to ask so um you have spoken with um all of the members of this this trout mask band who who are still with us uh, and I wanted to read you this quote um, from Robin Hitchcock, who just recently was talking about Trout Mask Replica on uh, the Quietus website. He said, it's interesting meeting magic band survivors now. They're all beefheart casualties and they all suffer from hats. They all wear hats and they make these oblique remarks and you think they're not really like that. But Beefheart imposed his personality on them when they were so young. It was like Dr. Van Vliet's Academy for Boys. And I was just kind of wondering, in your experience with these guys, how did they feel about this this experience in their life now and about what they produced with this album? Because it seems like, based on what they have said, it was a pretty traumatic experience. And uh, your interview with Jeff Cotton, it sounds like he had to go through quite a great deal to to overcome what he went through on this. And yet, they're a part of this absolutely singular creation. I think that um, I, I can't speak for them, but I, I, I suspect that their feelings about it are, are complex. Uh, I mean, first of like the first thing is this happened 50 years ago. Like that's a long time mm-hmm. ago, you know. Uh, so it, there's a certain amount of distance at this point that that they have from it. My my sense is that from an artistic point of view, like every one of them that I talk to is immensely proud of having having done it. I, I didn't get any you know any indication otherwise when I was speaking with them. The thing is, it's like it is a, an utterly unique thing to have to have participated in. Uh, one of the things that I'm really trying to uh, establish with whatever limited bandwidth I might have via my YouTube channel and my podcast is is that uh, there, there's been a lot of myths around this album for decades oh, yes. now, and uh, you know most of them completely fabricated. And I think one of the results of this has been that the performers, and, and they're more than just performers, by the way, they have not gotten due credit for what they did. Absolutely. Uh, you can like to, to simply say, well, the, the whole album was written by Don Van Vliet. Uh, it's not, it's not accurate. It simply isn't accurate. I mean, uh, I'm a professional composer. I've been doing it for 20 years. And I can say that uh, with this sort of material, it, like the way that the that, that you would choose certain fragments, that the way that you would arrange them in particular patterns and sequences, uh, and the way the precise way that you would massage them, because like the, they, they also have to be made to fit um, on, onto the guitar and the bass and all these instruments, which Don Van Vliet knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. And if you if you listen to some of the tapes of him banging on a piano, it's like it's it's pretty vague. Like you have to actually interpret it. You have to figure out what he's doing. You have to kind of figure out a, a way to make it work. That to me, like the amount of work that they had to do in order to turn this into, you know, a presentable album, it it I don't think it would be going too far to to say that at the very least they should be credited as arrangers, if not actually co-composers. Absolutely, um, and and that's something that simply hasn't been established in the in the public record about this. So, I'm I'm hoping that I can in some 
very minor way contribute to to public understanding of that because Don, you know, he was absolutely not capable of doing those things. Um, he provided the the impetus, he provided the 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 vision, the poetic imagery, the the creative force, and all of that. I don't think the album. I mean, it obviously would not have happened without him. Uh, you, you know, that that's mm-hmm. his, his role is obviously completely central and crucial, but he could not possibly have done it alone. Um, and if you want proof of that. All you have to do is listen to the albums that were done with other incarnations of the Magic Band. They're all different. They all sound different. It's like you needed this particular band together to make this album. And in particular, John French, uh, who sort of played the role of the transcriber and wrote the parts down and and taught them to the players and so on. uh, It was absolutely crucial. And in in many respects, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say the album is is as much his baby as it was Don Van Vliet's. And uh, so I I really hope that that... uh, becomes you know wider wider known i i agree completely and that's I, I was i was going to say without french i don't know that i don't know that there would have been a a magic band in a way that we un- understand this music that that van vliet would hand him these fragments and would when french would ask you know how is this supposed to gather to go together and and van vliet would respond well you know what to do or something like that based on on the reading i've done yeah, he he uh, he is he is owed a a massive a massive debt of critical reception and gratitude for for the work that he's done on that. Aside from his absolutely breathtaking drumming, which is is oh, one yeah. of the great sustained percussion performances in in all of popular music. Like the drumming oh, on I this agree. album is absolutely phenomenal, and the fact that on the original issue of this, he was not even credited simply from what I can tell out of out of Van Vliet's spite is is really a crime it I mean thankfully that has since been since been corrected but um yeah all all of us who love this album owe owe an enormous amount to John French for the the blood sweat and tears he put into to putting this together and the creativity that he put into to taking these individual fragments and producing them producing something that is is so singular and so unique while under the tutelage of someone who could be at ex- from i i don't wish to speak ill of the dead but could could be a very difficult person to work with from all 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 accounts oh absolutely i mean the other thing about that also is uh is the you know the, the members of the band were all approximately 10 years younger than don was they were just and kids. that create yeah, they were just kids, and that that creates a distinct power dynamic that uh, that certainly you know was was crucial. Like if if you're 19 years old and you're working with this guy who's already you know pretty famous and he's got a really powerful personality and uh, he's got tremendous charisma and you're just you know you're really excited to be in the band and all that. Like there's there's a lot you'd be willing to put up with, especially if you're kind of inexperienced and you don't know much about how the business works and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, when they were, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, they were a lot more malleable and maybe willing to, to put up with a certain level of, uh, of discomfort or even abuse uh, to make something like this. Uh, whereas, obviously, if you're a little older, if you have, you know, more responsibilities in life, if you have, uh, you know, a family, kids and all that, like, you just can't, there's no possible way you could, you could make something like this or participate in this kind of experience. So I think that's also part of it. They were very, very young, and um, uh, I think when they when they got a little bit older and started to realize, you know, we're in our twenties now, we're you know pushing thirty, and we still don't have any security. We don't have any 
uh, financial uh, stability whatsoever. It's like, and they're starting to have, you know, to have families and that kind of thing. It's like, forget it. It's like the, they've, they've been screwed in this uh, incredibly pernicious uh, music industry and had a lot yep. of bad experiences and they have nothing to show for it. And so in, uh, you know, in basically every case, they had to figure out what they were going to do with their lives and, and sort of um, get on with things. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was incredibly different for, for diff- difficult for all of them. But nevertheless, out of that uh, experience, which was difficult, uh, has emerged this absolutely unique work of art that uh, 50 years later is still challenging us, still exciting listeners and still being talked about. Yeah, as I approached this project, I, you know, I come to this with with little more than having read a great deal about the Magic Band and loving this album with with all my heart. And I still feel as I sit down to record each episode a bit like one of the monkeys at the monolith in 2001 <laughs> trying to trying to just bang at this thing that i only i only very very vaguely understand yeah uh, there's a i'm sorry go ahead yeah that, that's it exactly that's it yeah um there's a tremendous number of things we could talk about with this song i know you have limited time today um the uh, uh when darren is hosting the show he usually rates each song i've said explicitly a couple times i'm pretty much going to rate every song five out of five because i feel like there's really nothing you can compare them to so rating them in any sort of different way doesn't really make a whole lot i mean suppose you could rate them against each other and there are certainly songs that are favorites and songs that i don't care for as much but each one is is absolutely singular um so i'm, I'm going to throw it to you you are welcome to rate the song out of five if you like uh, if not if you have any other points that you want to make about the track um, and any any plugs that you wish to make about about your own work or your own projects? Well, I, I mean, I give the song a ten out of five I mean, for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 wonderful. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in terms of plugging, well, I mean, I, I do have a CD out actually that came out you know, with impeccable timing right in the middle of the COVID crisis. And it's, uh, <laughs> well, we all need stuff to listen to. So yeah, exactly. So, so this new CD is called iridescent notation. It's on the Austrian label Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, Kairos records. And that's an album of my, um, uh, pieces for chamber orchestra and ensemble. And, uh, I'm really actually quite, quite pleased with that, uh, with that disc. And I, it, the, the rollout has been a little bit slower than it would otherwise just because of the, the current situation but i'd be really happy if uh, if people could could check that out you can hear a lot of the tracks um actually on um well they're all on spotify they're on itunes you can also buy the cd directly from from kairos um the other thing is my uh, i have a podcast and a youtube channel so if anyone wants to hear uh, my analyses of um, what i consider to be really exceptionally interesting pop and rock music as well as contemporary composition my uh, youtube channel is just called uh, samuel andreev so you can a-n-d-r-e-y-e-v and i also have a podcast called the samuel andreev podcast and i will make sure all those links are included with this uh, information with this podcast when it goes out um, if you are sufficiently interested in captain beefheart to listen to this and you have not heard uh, mr andreev's uh, discussion of Friendland and his interviews with john french Mark Boston, Bill Harkelrode, and Jeff Cotton. Um, turn this off now and go listen to them because they are incredibly fascinating and illuminating. Um, as for this show, uh, you can follow it on Twitter at underscore track by track. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter for some bizarre reason, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. Uh, same as on Instagram. And uh, once again, Mr. Andreev, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the program. It's my pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you.